Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. On today's broadcast, Pastor John continues the series entitled Foundations of Our Faith. This message is part number two of that series, and it is subtitled Trusting the Word. And now, here's today's message. Father, I thank you for your blessing, for your presence that was manifested among us in our worship today. And Lord, I pray the same would be true of this, of this word this morning. God, I pray that your words would fill my mouth, that your, that, your, that your understanding, God, would fill our minds, that we not just hear but do what your word says this morning so that we don't deceive ourselves, but we are in, in, in right relationship with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So I mentioned this song this morning, and, and this song is a, was a declaration, and I didn't ask them to sing it, and I didn't tell them what I was preaching. You know, the Holy Spirit is a much better planner and connector than we ever could be. The, the, the lyrics of this song come, come straight out of the Word of God, and, and there were declarations there that I, that I believe would be problematic in, in many churches in America today. I believe there'd be many people who would have a hard time singing with any sort of integrity and honesty many of the lines of that song because it is very, very clear. It comes straight out of the Word of God. And unfortunately, many, many people who claim the name of Jesus no longer believe what the Word has to say. And so we're going to talk about that uh, today in a message called Trusting the Word. Now, one of the most famous accounts in the Old Testament, and it's what I referred to when I asked you to turn to Exodus, and we'll read it together in just a moment. But one of the most famous accounts in the Old Testament is when Moses received the Ten Commandments. As a matter of fact, God had to give them to him twice. You remember that? Do you remember why he had to give them to him twice? Yeah, because while he was on Mount Sinai receiving the original copy, the children of Israel were in the valley below pressuring Aaron to make an idol that they could worship, a golden calf, you remember? So Moses had been on the mountain for 40 days, and in that amount of time, they had forgotten everything that they had seen God do. They forgot the plagues in Egypt that got them set free. They forgot the parting of the Red Sea that God supernaturally allowed them to walk through on dry ground. They've forgotten the supernatural provision of manna, the supernatural provision of, of water. In less than six months from the time they left Egypt, they had abandoned the one true God and had decided to worship a golden calf instead. But what sometimes gets lost in this is, is what they called this thing. And I want you to pay attention to this. In Exodus chapter 32, the first five verses, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses, which is a lie. They know exactly where he was, who brought us here out of the land of Egypt. Verse 2, so Aaron said... Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, look at this, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
Verse 5, Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf, and then he announced this, Aaron announced this, look at this, tomorrow will be a festival, not to the golden calf, not to this idol we just crafted, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord, the Lord. They called this thing God. They called this thing by the same name as the God who brought them out of Egypt. And they claimed that this calf that they donated and watched the creation of was the God who brought them out of Egypt. To the outside observer, they may have appeared to be worshiping God, but though this thing had the name of God, it was not God. This was not how God wanted to be worshipped. This was not a display of his character or his nature. It did not have his power. So though it had the name of God, it was nothing like God. See, in the Old Testament, each of the nations had their own gods. And you see, even God refers to that through Isaiah the prophet and Jeremiah the prophet. He talks about the, the gods of the, of the nations. Sometimes even within a nation, particular tribes and groups of people had their own gods. But what set Israel's God apart is that they believed, rightly, that he was the one true God above all the others. And that he was the eternal and all-powerful God. That he was the same to everyone, everywhere. That there was no need for national gods or tribal gods any longer when you worship the one true God. So here's the question on my mind. I wonder if we're not doing the same thing today. I wonder if we're not still creating our own gods today in our nations. Still going to church, still calling him Jesus, but it's really not the same Jesus of the Bible. And it's really not the same Jesus that may, maybe other nations serve. I wonder if we have people groups in this country who worship their own versions of Jesus. If we've got white Jesus and black Jesus, Hispanic Jesus and Asian Jesus. I wonder if there's a middle class Jesus and a poverty Jesus. Santa Claus Jesus. 911 Jesus that you call him, he bails you out when you get in trouble, but otherwise he pretty much stays out of sight and out of mind. I wonder if we got American Dream Jesus where we use his principles to help us achieve our goals and our plans and our visions. You see, it, it hurts to hear that kind of stuff, but I don't think you'd have to look very hard to realize there's a lot of truth to be discovered in the answers to those questions. How many churches and people and nations are worshiping a God called Jesus, but is in reality a golden calf of their own making? And how does that even happen? How does that happen? The same way it happened for the Israelites. See, they depended on their own experience to understand God. They had no objective written uh, word or no objective written account of who God was and what he wanted. As a matter of fact, that's what Moses was doing on the mountain at the very time that they created this thing. He was receiving the written word of God. The beginning of God's revelation of himself to his people. But their experience betrayed them so fast they couldn't receive it. Here's, here's the takeaway for us. We have the written word of God now. 
And we, but if we filter our understanding of God through our own experience, through our own history, through our own tragedies and triumphs, through our own needs and wants and desires, we're going to skew our understanding of who God really is. He gave us his written word so that we could see and we could see and hear and know him for who he really is. And I want to show you this in Revelation chapter 7. Verses 9 and 10, Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to to count from every, look at this, every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Listen, he is the God for every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation. But listen, he is a person. He's a person with a personality, not multiple personalities. He is a person with a personality. He's unique. He has attributes. He has characteristics. And he wants to be known not for who we'd like him to be, but for who he actually is. So now that we have the Word of God, there's no need for us to filter Him through our experiences and through our lenses. But see, that leads to another problem. Although we have greater access to the Bible in this generation than any other time in history, believers today, believers today know less about the Bible than we ever have. And multiple polls one after the other, have confirmed that people who claim the name of Jesus really have almost no idea what's in this book. And because of that, they're falling victim to deception and false doctrine like we've never seen before at a rate we never even imagined. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. Paul said, listen, Timothy, a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires and they'll look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll, ch- they'll reject the truth and chase after myths. How does that happen? Well, when we fail to read and understand the word of the one true God, then we, we run the risk of creating a God in our own image instead of recognizing ourselves as a reflection of the Father who created us. And so that's why this series is so important. It's a, it's a quick series. It's three weeks. We just started it last week. But the, the, the series is about the Bible as the foundation of our faith. If we aren't careful to understand this word, if we aren't protective of this word, we will wind up, as we said last week, on shifting, sinking sand. God gave us his word so that we could know him without the bias of our personal experience. So the more we understand about this word, the more we understand about him. And ultimately knowing him is the only goal that's worth pursuing. So where did this Bible come from? Well, last week we established that we can believe the word. Because we've looked at, there's enough fulfilled prophecy, enough evidence from fulfilled prophecy that sets this book, this book apart from any other book. So how did it get to us? And how can we trust that what we have today is what God authored all those centuries ago? 
And today I want to answer those questions in a, in a message called Trusting the Word. Trusting the Word. Last week was believing the Word. This week, trusting the Word. How? Well, first of all, we can trust the Word of God because it was clearly transmitted. It was clearly transmitted. We're going to talk a lot more about this uh, in the next message, but we need, to, we need to see this now in order to provide context for why we can trust the Word of God. I want to show you this in 2 Peter Second Peter chapter 1. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the, dawn, the, the, the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, look at this, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. Or from human initiative. No, the prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Those who wrote the Bible were not speaking from their own understanding. They weren't speaking from their own plans. It wasn't their own initiative. They didn't decide to sit down and write the Bible. They were simply being obedient to what the Lord was saying to them in that moment. The Holy Spirit spoke to them, and they wrote down what he spoke. And they, they took it very, very seriously. And God took it seriously as well. You say, well, what if God gave his word and then somebody lost it or somebody intentionally destroyed it? God is fully capable of speaking to his prophets again if he needs to. Look at what happened to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 36, verse 16. When they heard all the messages, they looked at one another in alarm, and they said, we must tell the king what we've heard. They said to, to, to Baruch. So, but first, tell us how you got these messages. Did they come directly from Jeremiah? So Baruch explained, Jeremiah dictated them. I wrote them down in ink, word for word on the scroll. Now, they take it to the king. And look what the king decides to do. In verse 21, the king sent uh, Jehudi to get the scroll. He brought it from Elishama's room, read it to the king as all his officials stood by. It was late autumn. The king was in the winterized part of the palace, sitting in front of a fire to keep warm. And each time he finished reading three or four columns, the king took a knife, cut off that section of the scroll. He then threw it in the fire, section by section, until the whole scroll was burned up. Look at verse 27. After the king burned the scroll, which had Jeremiah's written words, the Lord gave Jeremiah another message. He said, get another scroll and write everything again, just as you did on the scroll King, Jeho king Jehoiakim burned. And then say to, this, to the king, this is what the Lord says, you burned the scroll because it said the king of Babylon would destroy this land and empty it of people and animals. Now this is what the Lord says about the king Jehoiakim of Judah. He will have no heirs to sit on the throne of David. His body, dead body will be thrown out to lie unburied, exposed to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him and his family and his attendants for their sins. I will pour out on them and on all the people of Jerusalem and Judah all the disasters I promised, for they would not listen to my warnings. So Jeremiah took another scroll and dictated again to his secretary. He wrote everything that had been written on the scroll King Jehoiakim had burned in the fire, only this time he added much more. God was so passionate about his word 
that he gave Jeremiah the message again, and, it, and he wrote it down again. Jeremiah was determined that the word of God was going to be written just as God had given it to him. Thank God for men of integrity like Jeremiah who were so passionate about the word of God. So what are we, where is our passion for the word of God? How committed are we to the word of God? You say, well, John, what about the New Testament? What, what's the New Testament say? All you've talked about is the Old Testament. Did God speak to the men in the New Testament as well? Well, let's look at what it says. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand. Y'all ever have a hard time understanding some of the New Testament? So did, so did Peter. Uh, some of his comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something different. Look at this. Just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. The writings of Paul make up a third of the New Testament. And Peter just said that his writings carry the same weight as the Old Testament Scriptures. Why can you trust the Word? Because it was transmitted clearly by the Holy Spirit, from God's mouth to their ears. They heard what God was saying and they wrote it down. The same Spirit who came upon Samson so that he might have, so mightily that he killed a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. The same Spirit who came upon a teenager named David and gave him the power to kill a bear and a lion and a giant. The same Spirit who caused John the Baptist to leap in his mother's womb. The same Spirit Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead came upon Micah and Isaiah and Habakkuk and Moses and Paul and Jude and gave them the power to do something even more incredible than the feats of David and Samson. He gave them the power to hear and to know and to write down the very words of the living God. You can trust the word because it was clearly transmitted by God through the Holy Spirit. Here's the second, the second reason. You can trust it because it was meticulously transcribed. Meticulously transcribed. People say, well, well, I believe that the prophets heard right, but that was thousands of years ago. How do we know that what they wrote and what we have is the same thing? And it's a valid question. Let's look at this process and the results. So once the original copies were written down, often by assistants like Jeremiah had, then, then people called scribes began to make exact copies so that it wouldn't be lost and so that it could be widely distributed to others. That, that's why the word transcribed, it was transmitted to us by the scribes. And they were passionate about their jobs. Now, the, New, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the Hebrew language. The New Testament was written in, mostly in Greek, also in some Aramaic. Those original documents were transcribed exactly as they were written, uh, and they were transcribed for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, in those original languages. The way you validate whether something's authentic or not and whether something's accurate or not is to look at as many copies as possible, and copies as old as possible. So the closer you get to the date of the original writing, the more assured you can be of their accuracy. There are over 5,000 copies of the New Testament. 
either in its entirety or almost its entirety. And there are thousands more partial copies and fragments. By comparison, there are only 700 copies of, of uh, a poem called the Iliad that Homer wrote, the Greek poet Homer wrote, only 700 copies. There are only a handful of copies of anything that Aristotle ever wrote. Nobody questions the, the creativity of Homer. Nobody questions the wisdom of Aristotle. Just in, in terms of sheer numbers, the New Testament is the most transcribed document in history. When you compare all of those copies, those thousands of copies against each other and against what we have today, there is only a minuscule difference in any of the copies. If, if, if you removed everything that was in question, nothing would change about our faith. Every major doctrine of Christianity has been confirmed over and over and over again, even through hundreds of years of transcriptions. And what about the, the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament was, for a long time, the, the, the oldest copies of the Old Testament only dated to the ninth century after Christ. That is until 1947. A group of teenagers were throw, in, in, in Qumran, Israel, were throwing rocks in a cave. And, and they heard... They heard pottery breaking, and they didn't expect that. So they climbed up there, and they found a bunch of, a bunch of clay pots. In the pots were all these scrolls. And when they, when they called in the authorities, then inside those clay pots were 800 man, manuscripts, copies of every book of the Bible except Esther. Many of them were entire copies. There were, these were a 1,000 years older than any of the copies in existence at that time. They're, called the, they're known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They've proven that the copies we have today are virtually identical to the copies that were a thousand years older. There was less than 2% difference. And again, nothing that made any theological difference. So John, what does, what does this mean? It, it means you can trust the Bible that you hold in your hands. These 66 books of the Bible are the most studied, the most scrutinized piece of literature in history. And you can trust that the God who was able to transmit his word to the writers is also able to preserve their integrity by having it meticulously transcribed through the ages. And lastly, you can trust it because it's been faithfully translated. Faithfully translated. So the Lord clearly spoke to the authors. The scribes meticulously copied them. But how would people that don't know Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic be able to read the Bible for themselves? That's why it was translated. Translation is an important thing because languages are not static. Right? You, have you ever used a word and your kids or your grandkids went, oh, don't say that. Because language changes. Words mean different things over time. Meanings change. Nuance and implications change. So in order to make sure people were able to continue to understand exactly what God was communicating, the Bible was translated into the most current languages. The first translation of Scripture came 300 years before Christ's birth. And the scholars met in Alexandria, Egypt, to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek. That translation is called the Septuagint. At that time, most of the Mediterranean world spoke Greek, including most of the Jews. Many of the Jews didn't even speak English, uh, uh, Hebrew anymore. This translation made the Scriptures accessible to all the people in a language that they could understand. 
When the, as a matter of fact, when the New Testament authors, when Paul, even Jesus, and, and, and others in the New Testament, when they quoted the Old Testament, many times they were quoting the Septuagint. They were quoting the Greek version, not the original version. So that should lend a lot of credibility to the accuracy of that translation. The New Testament was written mostly in Greek because that was the language most commonly spoken at the time. But as the influence of the Roman Empire grew uh, and expanded, people began to speak Latin instead of Greek. And so around the 3rd or 4th century after Christ, they, they created what's known as the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. It was a translation of the Bible into Latin, and that's what was used by the Roman Catholic Church for the next several centuries. And, and, and in some cases, they still use it today in their liturgy, in their Mass. But, but things began to change. Things began to change around the 14th century. Uh, up until that time... The church taught that only the priests should have access to the Bible. It was not for the common people. And as a matter of fact, most of the common people in those days were illiterate anyway. They couldn't have read any version of the Bible. But men like Wycliffe and Tyndale and many others began to challenge this notion. They believed in what they called the priesthood of the believers. The priesthood of the believers, which is exactly what the Bible teaches. Let me show you in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you're not like that. Look, you're a chosen people. You're a, you are royal priests, a holy nation of God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous or wonderful light. We are a royal priesthood, all of us. No other person has to be a go-between for us. So as priests, we have the right, and listen, we have the responsibility to read and understand these scriptures for ourselves. Peter and Paul and the other apostles were passionate about people being ready to make a defense of their faith. You can't defend what you don't know and what you don't understand. So God inspired people to translate the Bible into the languages of the common people so that everybody can walk in that marvelous light of Scripture. Now listen, when it comes to the clear communication of God's Word, us Pentecostals ought to be leading the charge. See, 1 Corinthians 14 is a passage that we Pentecostals hang our hats on. In that chapter, it's the Apostle Paul laying down the ground rules for use of tongues and interpretation and prophecy in their church services. And listen, the issue was understandability. The issue was understandability. Paul said you should only use the gift of tongues in a service if there's an interpretation. Why? Because if, you, if, if not, you're just going to confuse people. It's not understandable. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 9 and verse 19. It, Paul said it's the same for you. If you speak to people in words they don't understand... How will they know what you're saying? You might as well be talking into empty space. And then look at verse 19. But in a church meeting, I'd rather speak five understandable words to help people, to help others, than 10,000 words in an unknown language. What's the issue? Hearing clearly what God is speaking. So hearing that clearly, whether it's through tongues with interpretation or through prophecy or through the written word, hearing clearly what God is saying is vital to us. So let me ask you this question. Why would you use a Bible that you can't understand? Let me, let me say this quickly because we live in the Bible Belt 
And, and there are a lot of people that, for, for a lot of people, the King James Version is still a big thing. It's still a thing for them. Uh, I've gotten lots of questions over the years and a fair number of anonymous letters, <laughs> emails, text messages, comments about me not using the right version of the Bible all the time. Um, as someone criticized our church, said we don't sing out of the hymn book and we don't preach out of the Bible. Um, so it, it, for me, it comes down to three, to three issues. It comes down to accuracy, equality, and clarity. So let's address accuracy first. Bible scholars agree that the best way to ensure accuracy of a translation is to use as many manuscripts as possible and from as long ago as possible. The King James Version was written in 1611 or finalized in 1611, and they had used six Greek manuscripts that dated to about the 10th to the 13th centuries. The modern translations, the NIV, the New Living Translation, and and many of the others, have used over 5,000 manuscripts from as early as the 2nd century, barely a generation after the Apostles' death. So a lot of people try to create this controversy about some of the modern translations leaving out scriptures uh, that, that were in the King James. It's not a conspiracy It's an editorial decision based on new manuscript evidence that hadn't even been discovered in 1611. They're not trying to deceive anybody. They're trying to get it right. They're trying to get as close to God's original transmission as possible. Now that's the accuracy piece. The equality piece is this. When the King James was published, it was a really good modern translation. It was beautiful. It was poetic. But listen, despite what some claim, it was not re-inspired. It, no, there's nothing in Scripture that would lead me to believe that God was ever going to inspire a translation the way He inspired the original transmission. If, if clear communication of God's revelation is the point, then why would God choose one translation in one language to put His special stamp of approval on? All the translations are equal as long as they're truly trying to accurately communicate the original transmission of God. Now, there are some fringe translations that have their own political or social agenda. That's not what we're talking about. But the modern translations that are widely accepted have done their very best to make sure they they get it as right as possible. Here's the third thing, clarity. Remember the purpose of a translation is to get into the languages of the people. The English they spoke in 1611 simply doesn't communicate effectively in 2019. As a matter of fact, if you listen to someone who teaches or preaches from the King James, they almost immediately say after every verse, in other words, because they have to translate it for their listeners because the language and the sentence structure is often archaic. Most of the scriptures that I've memorized, I memorized in the King James because that's the language I grew up with. That's what I learned. I got no problems with it. So please don't send me emails this week. I'm not condemning the King James. What I am saying is if you don't understand Shakespeare, then King James is probably not going to help you much. So let's, let, let's be honest with each other. Let's be real with each other. Look at the evidence and feel comfortable reading a translation you can actually understand. That's why I use it in the services. Because I'd rather use a translation that clearly speaks the language of the people I'm trying to minister to than me have to stand here and translate every verse I read. 
So when it, when, when it gives the, and this is the New King James, no, that's the NIV, I got a New King James, I got three or four laying around here all over the place. So when it clearly communicates the most accurate translation that God's trying to communicate, I use the King James. But if not, I'll use one of the others. It's as simple as that. You say, so, so listen, John, why do we need to know about all this stuff? Why, why do we need to know this stuff? Because God wants to be known today to every tribe, to every tongue, to every language. And listen, to every person. To every person. That's what this Bible is all about. God is speaking to you through His Word. Not through your experience. Not through your history or your culture. Not through your lens or your perspective. God is a person and he's trying to reveal himself for who he truly is. And there's nothing more powerful than the revelation of who God truly is. The Bible has been transmitted, it's been transcribed, it's been translated so that you can trust that it is the revelation of the real God. We don't have to create golden calves for ourselves anymore. Because we have this book, we can know Him for who He is. And listen, that's a good thing because our eternity depends on it. It's important we get this right. It's eternally important that we get this right. This is the foundation of our faith. We can build our lives on it. All other ground is sinking sand. We can build our eternity on it. But if we're not reading it, and if we're not understanding it, and if we're not putting it into practice, and we don't believe it for what it says it is, then we're deceiving our own selves. Would y'all stand with me? Listen, here's what we're going to do. You've been, you've been very patient. You say, John, I sure would like it if you'd just preach me a shout me down, happy, happy message that we can all just get excited about, feel good, and go home. I'd like that too. But did you see that's what Aaron the prophet did, or that's what Aaron the priest did? When he saw how excited the people got, he just kept doing what they wanted instead of what they needed. And so because I love you, I need to feed you some meat. I need to feed you the truth. Because there is coming a day when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Why? Because they've never heard it before. When, you, when you're used to eating dessert all the time and somebody gives you some actual meat and vegetables, of course it doesn't taste good. But you're not going to live long on dessert. So here's what we're going to do as we do every week. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to this altar. If there's anything that you need to pray about, the, the, the Lord said that his house will be called not a house of preaching, not a house of praise and worship, a house of what? prayer. So if you need to pray about anything, then I want you to come as, as soon as I as soon as I start to pray, you can come and begin to pray. You can come now. This altar is not open now because it's never closed. So you can come and pray about any situation you've got in your life. That's what the Lord wants. He makes intercession
between us and the Father based on the needs that we have in our lives. So if you want to pray about something in your life, if you want to intercede about something going on in somebody else's life, you come on down and pray, okay? We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.